Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Join me in Isaiah chapter 9. Just a moment ago we sang, and sometimes songs, words become common and we forget what we're singing. Oh, the pain of searing loss, the Father turned his face away. When Christ was on the cross, you never had him say anything in the way of complaint about the pain. Um, and the physical pain had to be unbelievable. But the only comment in any way is at that moment when the sin of mankind is placed on Jesus Christ and God turns his back. And Christ declares, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The pain of that moment was so great, he couldn't help but declare it. And then you look at it, he has marred the chosen one, and it is for me. You know, we come to the Christmas season, and we are looking at there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And we celebrate Christmas, Christ must. And we celebrate Jesus Christ at this time of year. But the great thing about Christmas is it is such a small part of the whole story. And really, when you think of the story of Jesus Christ, it is incredible. You have where we're starting today, and you look back thousands of years, how there was a time in which there was this longing and this looking for, going all the way back to the garden, in which there was a longing for the day that Christmas, that first one, would occur. And people looked, and they longed, and they desired. And then Christ comes, and it's not what everybody expected. And when Jesus walks on earth, fairly plain until the point he starts his earthly ministry the unbelievable miracle and working of god in this way was beyond our imagination people looked they couldn't understand they didn't know what to do with jesus time passes and the cross comes the tragedy of the story if you will the resurrection just a couple days later you could argue man there's the climax of this story but it's not you see, we are now in that time of the story where we are waiting for the climax. There is more to come. And as we look back at Christmas, even today, we look back on the birth that came to the cross that represents the coming again. And there is a day where as we say, I have been ransomed, I've been paid for, and Jesus Christ is coming again, and oh, how we can look forward to that day. But as we live in this time, from the resurrection until the coming again of Jesus Christ, we live and we walk around in our humanity trying to figure out this life and how we are to behave, live, act, grow, serve in this life, preparing for that life. But the reality is, it's not necessarily new to us in this day and age. It's many ways the same thing that people throughout all of humanity have struggled with. In the Old Testament, the point of view that they had was different than ours in the sense that they had to long for the day when Christ would come the first time. We long for the day when he will come the second time. In the nation of Israel, God had chosen them to be the ones in which the message of Jesus Christ was to be held and protected. God had chosen Abraham, and God built a nation out of him. That was a nation of people who God had chosen, who were people who God revealed himself to in very special ways. 
as the nation of Israel went along, they would get away from God. They would reject teaching of God, just like we do today. They would struggle, and God would come back to try and get their attention. The book of Isaiah, Isaiah is a prophet in which he comes to declare to the nation of Israel, look, there is judgment coming on you as a nation because you've rejected God. And that judgment did come, and as a nation, they were overthrown. But in the midst of this message, Isaiah, through inspiration of God, gives them hope. Join me in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. There is judgment coming, there is battle coming, but no. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and with justice. From henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This message delivered to the nation of Israel was an incredible moment of encouragement. Look, you're going to be judged. It's going to be rough for you. But the day's coming in which the Messiah will come. For us, He has come. It's coming. And when He comes, He will be. And then we get this description. Simple wording, easy for us to understand. Description of who Jesus is going to be. He is going to be the wonderful counselor. Now, it, really, you can see in your text there, there's a comma. There's wonderful and counselor. So, both of these words are distinct, and yet they do go together. So it is true that Jesus was going to be wonderful. But the wonderful and counselor do kind of tag together here and to help us understand who he is and who he is going to be. Romans 11.34 says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? The mind of God is brought into humanity and in Jesus Christ. There is the wonderful counselor. Oftentimes in life, as we get a little bit older, we come to places to where we respect and appreciate the input and the counsel of others. For some, you wouldn't have the same background, uh, but for many, you would be like me in the sense that you have parents who have been around you all of your life and who have been good godly parents and examples in your life. And there are times when something comes up and you go, I know exactly who I need to call on this. Now, if you're like me, I hesitate to make that phone call because I know that phone call is going to take three times longer than it needs to take. And I know there's going to be at least three follow-up phone calls. And I don't dare text because as soon as the text gets there, I will get a phone call back anyway. So I go ahead and I bite the bullet. This happened to me just yesterday. And, and I had a question for my dad, and I knew he had the answer. So I call my dad up and I ask the question. Now, it was at least four or five more phone calls throughout the day following up on this question. But I knew and I was grateful that I had someone I could call and ask and get that answer. One of the things I encourage people about is at times of funerals, the emotion at a funeral is very difficult. 
the processing of it can be a challenge. But what I've found and where I try to just encourage people is, look, there's going to come a day when you're just going along and life's busy and you got a question and you grab your phone to call someone who's no longer on this earth. And when that moment comes to where that counsel is gone, it's difficult. It, it, it's hard. It's challenging. It's a struggle for all of us. Jesus Christ is the wonderful counselor who always has the right answer and who never goes away. In fact, because of who Christ was, he helped us in ways that we don't even completely understand. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, was a, a tremendous counselor. We're going to look at that more in just a second. But Jesus, during his earthly ministry, was here. He ministered to people. He helped them understand. But when it comes time for him to leave this world, to die on the cross, he encourages even more in this area. In John 14, 26, Jesus says, I've got to go. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. There is a day coming when there is, is what he's telling the disciples, the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to be your comforter. He's going to be your counselor. He's going to be the one who reminds you of everything I have taught you. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have been one of the disciples? Just what life in that environment would have been like? I want to give you a quick illustration of it, and then we want to come back and think on this for just a second. You've got your Bible. Turn over to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Now, in Luke chapter 10, we don't see the disciples per se, though they are here. But we see a microcosm of the counsel and the wisdom in the words of Jesus. Look there in verse 38. Luke 10, verse 38. Now it came to pass as they went. Well, that they is Jesus and the disciples. That he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his words. But Martha was cumbered about with much serving, and came to him and said, Lord... Dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. That passage is a constant convicting passage to me. Because I am very much a Martha in personality, in, in which I want the, the doing of it. I want to accomplish. I need to get things done. And too often, I recognize that I'm doing exactly what Martha does. And think about this. There is a moment at which Jesus is standing and teaching, or, or sitting and teaching, whatever the case may be. He's teaching, and Martha has the privilege to sit and to listen to his counsel. And she chooses not to do it. And Mary recognizes all the other stuff's not important. And she just sits down. She relaxes. And she listens. And she listens. And she listens. 
how many times, please tell me I'm not the only one, how many times do you just not even worry about the counsel of the Lord? How many times the Holy Spirit who indwells me as a believer, who was sent to be my comforter, my guide, and my counsel, how many times do I take no time because I'm too busy doing? Now look, this is one moment in the life of Mary and Martha. Their personalities completely come out, but it's still one moment. Think about the years that the disciples spent with Jesus. Think about the things they could have learned. Have you ever been around a young person, and it's just kind of human nature and the independent nature of us as people, where a young person grows up under a parent that you look at and you go, man, that parent is extremely knowledgeable. I've got a friend. He can work on anything. He can make any car run. I mean, he can make anything run anywhere. We've been different countries on missions trips together, and he can get something running that they don't even have parts for. I mean, it's just what. There was a generator. We were in one country. There was a generator. He said, I had a guy who worked on that thing for three days. He couldn't get it running. This guy had the thing running in about 15 minutes. It's just he just can make a motor run. Now, he's got a son who barely knows how to turn the keys in a car. It's just personality-wise, he has no desire to learn anything about cars. And you can look at that, and you can go, well, here's somebody who grew up under somebody who knows so much about cars. How would he not just soak that in? Hey, if you don't learn about cars, it's okay. But can you imagine growing up under Jesus for these three years and just walking and seeing the amount of counsel you could soak in, the, learn the things you could see, and then sometimes I wonder, which one of the disciples would I be like? You got Judas, who completely missed everything. He, he just disregarded it, he rejected it, he didn't want any part of it. You got Thomas. Thomas heard it. Thomas learned about it. Thomas recovered, I believe, in a great way. But Thomas just kind of doubts it. You got Peter. Peter's there with Jesus. He sees all that he does. And then when Jesus makes declarations... Peter looks at him and says to him, no, that's not true. Peter, what are you thinking, man? So much so that Jesus has to look at Peter and say, get thee behind me, Satan. You ever been guilty of that? Where you know what the Bible says, but you think, well, that can't be true. James, I think James legitimately, in his time with Jesus, just soaks things in. And I think he listens, I think he pays attention, I think he absorbs a lot. But then there's John. John comes to a place to where John realizes, and you can see it throughout the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. John comes to a place to where he realizes what Jesus is teaching, the counsel that he has is incredible. But more than the counsel he has, the counsel just reveals who he is. And he's incredible. And John comes to a place to where he doesn't just love the advice. He doesn't just love the wisdom. He loves the counselor. Amen. Oh, that you and I would come to the place to where we seek the counsel of God. Do you understand? Jesus is the answer to all of life's questions. There is no question that has ever been that Jesus is not the answer. If you are going through life and you are struggling, I just don't know about 
The answer is Jesus. It's that simple. There has never been and there will never be a situation he does not know how to handle. I've been asked often in my life, hey, what are we going to do about? And used to, I always tried to come up with an answer. I don't even try anymore. I just will simply say, I don't know. But God does and he'll let us know when it's time. Because that's the reality of it. He is the wonderful counselor. I am so grateful for those in my life that when I need, I can pick up the phone and call. But I am more grateful that there is one I can seek in heaven who has answers that no one else does. He doesn't need anybody's advice. He doesn't need anybody else's help. He has every answer, and he is the answer. He is the wonderful counselor. The next phrase given to Jesus there is that he is the mighty God. The mighty God. We underestimate the unbelievable might of his power. How a baby can be mighty God is beyond us. Jesus crawled. He learned how to walk. He stumbled and fell. He went through puberty. He grew into a man. When the miracles started to flow, we can look at that and go, well, yeah, I can, I can begin to see God in him. But he was God all along the way. He was never ever any less. He took all of the power of God and contained it as a baby and we look at that and go, oh, well, he contained it as a baby, and when he got older, he, be, he let it all out. Not even close. Do you realize the power of God was only slightly less contained when Jesus was performing all of his earthly miracles as when he was a baby? We like to think, like, on a scale of 1 to 100, the power of God, baby, zero, over here, performing all the miracles, that was probably, like, 85, and then, you know, now that he's in heaven, it's up to 100. No, it's probably, like, zero over here, and then when we come to his earthly miracles, it's, like, three. You see, the power of God is so far beyond our imagination because he is the mighty God. In the Old Testament, we get a little better example sometimes of the might of God. Isaiah, the same book as we looked at earlier, 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will do my pleasure. There is nothing in Jesus that he is not able to do. And when we see what he did, it is such a minuscule amount of what he is able to do. He is the mighty God. In John chapter 9, the Bible tells us that again, he called, excuse me, the council, they called the man that was blind and said unto him, give God the praise. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. He answered and said, the blind man, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you did not hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? 
Will ye also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. Goes on, and he runs in, to, the man that was blind runs into Jesus, and Jesus says, look, it's not that I'm from God, I am God. And for Jesus to heal a blind man was nothing. And whatever the problem is in your life, to Jesus is nothing. Does he take away all of our problems? No, he doesn't. And we'll see more why in just a second. He doesn't. But it is not because he is not able. Do you understand? Jesus is the power to defeat all of life's problems. Can you imagine... For just a second, what Lazarus' life was like afterwards? When they, they seek to put Jesus to death, one of the reasons that they're out to put Jesus to death is because he has raised Lazarus from the dead, and the fame of it is spreading everywhere. And so now Jesus' popularity is skyrocketing. The religious leaders are out to attack him. They want to see him die, all because... Of what happened to Lazarus. But can you imagine for just a minute Lazarus' fame? Can you imagine the questions he got? What was it like being dead? What did it feel like? How did you breathe inside of that thing? What did it smell like in the tomb? How do you, and just all of these questions. All he could do at that moment was just give God the glory. You, you don't understand. I didn't do anything. But Jesus did everything. He's the problem to all of life's problems. He's the answer, excuse me, to all of life's problems. If that were true, that would be enough. But as mighty God, he's not just the answer to all of life's problems. Jesus is the power to give all of life's joy. So he can take the problems of this life and deal with any of them. But more than that, in the midst of problems, he can give joy in every situation. Why? Because he is mighty God. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting Father. And John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. When we look at Jesus Christ, he is the everlasting Father. Now, you go, wait, 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 Pastor, Pastor. Now, doctrinally, he's the Son. That's not the description given to him. He's the everlasting Father. We go, well, how can he be Father and Son? I'm both, and he's sure more than I am. You see, he is God. He is everlasting. He always was. Just the other day, justice, thinking through life. If God made everything, who made God? It's a legitimate question, isn't it? 
If somebody made him, he wouldn't be God, bud. That's why he is God. Because he always has been and he always will be. He is everlasting. There is no beginning. There is no end. There is no limit. And we just can't understand that because we're linear. There's no beginning. He, he just always was. But more than that, the phrase here used is that of father. In Psalm 103, 13, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. The wonder of it all is that he loves each one of us like there was only one of us to love. With five kids now, I find it hard to have time to show the love that I want to show to each one of my children. I just do. And I would love to be able to show them more. And the wonder of it all is that God is not limited that way. You see, in Jesus Christ, the love of God is shown to all, but through Jesus Christ, he becomes the everlasting father, the one who looks on us in love in a special way, and he cares for each one of us like we are the only one. And he loves us so intensely, so immensely, that he comes and he says, I have always been, I will always be, and yet you are so important to me. The reality is, most of us in our life have come to a place to where we recognize we're really not that important. I read a quote by Spurgeon this past week. It was great. Uh, somebody put it online, and, and he said this. He said, when someone thinks ill of you or thinks, said something bad about you, I think what it was, he said, don't think ill of them because you are far worse than what they think of you. You go, man, that kind of hurts but it's absolutely true. And the reality is we come to a place to where we realize in the grand scheme of existence of mankind, I'm fairly unimportant. But don't tell God that. He doesn't feel that way about me at all. To me, to him, I, I, I'm as important as anyone who has ever lived because to him, I'm his child. And he is my father. He loves me unconditionally. And he knows the end from the beginning. He knows all that my life is. And he says, I am the one who has the counsel. I am the one who has the power. And I am the one who cares so much for you that I will take care of all of your life. Jesus' love for us is not limited by time. When I am gone, he will still love me because I will be with him. Before I came, he loved me. That everlasting aspect of God gives me an unbelievable place of security because it never goes away. You have the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. In John 14, 27, it says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth give I unto you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That word trouble there means be agitated. You ever been agitated? Have you ever had to agitate something? To agitate, you just shake it. You just got to shake it up. And man, I don't know about you, but I got a lot of days that just kind of feel like somebody's just shaking. And, and Kara, all the time, I will explain the events of something. 
And, and Carol will go, you just had not learned patience yet. I'm like, learn it? I ain't got any of it. What, are you kidding me? I, I went into the store the other day, and I brought the three older kids with me. And so we went into the grocery store, and I, the aisle I needed sup on was the only aisle anybody in the store was on. I'm convinced of it. And, and so and you're probably like me. I hope you're not as bad as me. There are just common sense things that when I walk down an aisle like that, I'm going, well, don't you have any sense? Like the person who turns their cart sideways in the aisle, and then they stand behind their cart with a display behind them, so there's literally no way to get by them, and they just stand there. Or when you're going to look at something, and the person stands this close to the shelf, and they won't move, and what you need is right there, and you're just going... trying to get the hint. Maybe if you move, I could get out of here and get out of this one aisle where everybody in the store is. And I just, and it, it seemed like, and then, then the person who was sideways in the aisle, they walked past me going this way. Then they walked past me going that way. Then they walked past me going this way. Then they walked past me going that way. All while I'm waiting for the one person to move to get the thing that's right there. Then they left the aisle. I'm still waiting. Here comes the person back. Not even joking. Right back. I'm like, didn't you get everything on the aisle already? And it's just, you come to a place to where it just feels like somebody's just sitting there kind of shaking you. <laughs> How are you going to do today? How, are you going to be troubled? Are you going to be agitated? And Jesus said, my peace I give unto you. The reality is, it, for me, when something big happens, it's easier for me to get peace in the big things. It's harder for me to get peace in the agitating things, the little things that just constantly kind of of life, and, and they just go and they go and they go. If you are a morning person, you don't understand this at all. If you are not a morning person, you're saying amen, and I haven't even told you yet. My kids are all morning people right now because they're kids. And so first thing in the morning, I try to help with the early morning feeding with the twins. And so I'm trying to feed them, and the last thing in the world I want to do is talk. And all three of the kids come in, and all three talk at the same time, while I'm feeding one kid, and the other one's crying. And I'm just going, please stop. I just like noise-canceling headphones. That's all I need right now. And just I'll smile and nod. And you look at that, and that moment, you just kind of shake. And those of you who are not morning people, you're going, you ain't lying. I know exactly what you're talking about. The rest of you are going, I don't understand. We go through life, and all of us have our shake. We have our agitation. That thing, that part of life, that, that way that just steals peace. Jesus says, look, my peace I give unto you. And it is not just the peace that when Jesus Christ looked at the storm on the sea, he said, peace, be still. And the wind and the waves obeyed his voice. He is the prince of peace. He has the ability to give the peace, but he has the power and authority of deity to ensure it and to command it. If I am going through life, and at any moment, at any time, I am agitated. The problem is not the person in the aisle with their cart sideways. The problem is I'm not letting him be the Prince of Peace. The problem is spiritual. It's not conditional. 
And I have to come to a place in which I recognize and I humble myself. Look, this is a great quote, so I want you to think through it in context of the Prince of Peace. Ronald Reagan coined a phrase, peace through strength. He said, we know that peace is the condition under which mankind was meant to flourish. Yet peace does not exist of its own will. It depends on us, on our courage to build it and guard it and pass it on to future generations. George Washington's words may seem hard and cold today, but history has proven him right again and again. To be prepared for war, George Washington said, is one of the most effective means of preserving peace. Well, to those who will think strength provokes conflict, Will Rogers, so again, this is Ronald Reagan now saying of Will Rogers, had his own answer. He said of the world heavyweight champion of his day in boxing, I have never seen anyone insult Jack Dempsey. His power ensured he didn't get insulted. Ronald Reagan's point was power and might and military strength proves and controls and guards peace because nobody's going to attack the one who's that strong. And I have the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince who protects my peace. Who's going to come and defeat him? Who's going to come and attack him? Who's going to come and look at Jesus and say, you can't give them peace? No one. No one can do that. And so the only one who takes away my peace is me. Because I don't come to the prince who gives it. Jesus is the captain and commander of the peace under which life flourishes. If a nation flourishes under peace, how much more does a life? Now look, I want to run through a couple things real quickly here. You stay with me, we'll be done in just a moment. The Lord is a counselor because I need wisdom and guidance. That's true. I, I know that. There's no arguing that. And the Lord is my counselor. The Lord is mighty because I need strength and power to give my life the ability to please Him. The Lord is Father because I need a firm and gentle, caring hand that helps with my provision. The Lord is peace because I need quietness, rest, and freedom from trouble and agitation. If those things were all, that would be glorious. But they're not all. You see, it is not just that the Lord is my counselor because I need wisdom. He is a wonderful counselor. The Lord has better advice for your life than anyone. It is amazingly and wonderfully different from the advice of the world. And I need it. The Lord is mighty because I need strength. But His might is divine. There is no greater power in all the universe than His. It will prevail over all His enemy. It is full of hope. He is my mighty God. The Lord is my Father because I need care. I need provisions. But his fatherhood is everlasting. You will never attend this father's funeral. He will never get old and senile. He will never lose his way. You will never be his orphan. 
He is the everlasting Father. And His peace is what I need for quietness and rest, but His peace is maintained by His princely authority. The peace He gives cannot be conquered. There is no enemy strong enough to defeat the Prince of Peace. The promise made through Isaiah thousands of years ago was fulfilled in Jesus Christ is ensured in our lives today with the earnest of the Holy Spirit of God. And the day will come when it will be permanent, complete, all over earth. But today, if you don't have an answer, Jesus is the answer. If there's a problem that seems too big, He is the power over the problem and the power of all of life's joy. You just don't feel like anybody cares. He is the everlasting Father. If there's agitation, He is the Prince of Peace. You've heard the message. Now I hope you'll respond to it. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, now's the time to bow your head and ask Him to save you. In John 6:37, Jesus tells us that He will not cast out anyone who calls upon Him. I hope that you will call on Him today. If you need help spiritually, we'd love to be of service to you. Leave us a message, would you? At hbcga.org or 770-974-9091. Our service times are 1045 on Sunday morning. 9.30 for Sunday school, 5 o'clock for the evening service, and then 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Our services are warm and welcoming, and you will feel right at home. Come and visit us here at Harvest, and call on us if you need us. God bless you.